most original and creative talent in our business, would you welcome Mr. Orson Welles. Ladies and gentlemen, Orson Welles again, come to call for another visit. Good evening. This is Orson Welles. It's a two-fisted, quick-triggered marksman who shoots from the hip and never misses. Well, hello again. This is Buck Benny speaking. We have a wonderful full house of my commentators back, and everybody's here, which is awesome. Vincent, for the first time in quite a while. Um, good to have you back, Vincent. Good to be back. And uh, we're talking about Orson Welles, and we wanted to save this episode. Terry and I were going to talk about it last week when it was just the two of us, and we decided, no, this is such a good episode with so much meat to it that we would go ahead and uh, save that uh, for now. And uh, Terry and I were also chatting just about how accurate uh, Mr. Orson Welles is, and that he always has his facts straight. He never <laughs> seems to sort of... Just have things that aren't well researched, and and uh, you can always trust everything he says. Am I, am I correct with that, Terry? In this uh, uh, almost. That's that's very close to true, except <laughs> for the except for the fact that it's not. But other oh. than that, <laughs> <laughs> no. This this episode, uh, Mr. Wells gets a few things wrong, but I'm sure Terry will point some of those things out as we go. Uh, let's go to Vincent first, though. Uh, Vincent, what in this episode stood out to you is something you wanted to chat about. Yeah, so what surprised me in, in prepping this episode was that Wells does not have as much going on as normal. Uh, in fact, like if, you know, I looked at the trades and the newspapers and he's basically only filming The Stranger right now, which is, you know, his Edward G. Robinson sort of Nazi spy in disguise thriller. But that's really it. I mean, he's not trying to act in whatever. And so... Um, you know, I think we have another sort of pretty well put together episode, albeit not historically accurate in times. But I feel like this is Wells in his sort of myth building phase. I mean, he loved myths and legends. And here we see that. Um, I won't comment too much on that, which I'm excited to hear Terry and everyone else talk. But um, he does mention very briefly at the beginning that when he's talking about DeMille, that they couldn't be politically different, like on the separate spectrums. And so I looked a little bit into that. And um, I mean, he's totally right. Wells, obviously a, a burning leftist. And from what I can tell, DeMille was, was the opposite. Edward G. Robinson, who was more akin to Wells politically, said, quote, no, there was no one more conservative or patriarchal in Hollywood. And he was vehemently against communism or any sort of permutation of it. And so... Um, yeah, I mean, he was right wing in every way. From what I could read, he had like, he was just contemptful of people who were the left. So I think Wells, to even bring this up, I think he is making a dig on DeMille. I mean, it's like unintentional, but I think he's like trying to make this weird connection that like, I don't like DeMille politically. Oh, yeah, he's, you know, he influenced, you know, the fascist regime in some way. So he's not saying like, this was purposeful. But I think he's more open to this legend and this myth because he's not politically aligned with DeMille. He has no kinship with DeMille. And so um, I think he's fine with this legend being what it is. So um, <laughs> leave it at that. 
and feeding into it a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> oh, he feeds into it hard. He feeds into it hard. But I think that's that's how I would preface this is, you know, what we're about to talk about now is he's he didn't need to do his research because I'm not sure he cared. I think he'll throw DeMille under the bus. So Right, right. Well, now that I think about it, uh, we usually present this. I was thinking, oh, it's visual. People will be able to see everybody. But now that I, I think about it, usually this one we present in audio form, though I've been playing with, toying with the idea of putting some of these on YouTube as well, and, and since we have the video as well. But I thought, well, let me go around and introduce everybody so at least we know who's here, right, for, for our audio listeners. We had Vincent Longo just talk to us, and then we have Catherine fuller Seely here, we have John Henderson, and we have Terry Phillips, and we have myself, Buck Benny, all here to... Uh, entertain you and, and enthrall you with our wonderful discussion of Orson Welles. <laughs> you should have thrown in somebody else because if they can't see anyway. That's right. Somebody who sits there quietly. Yeah, yes. we could all do voices. Yes. We, we also have Zach Eastman with us, but I'm sure Zach won't say much today. He tends <laughs> to keep quiet all the time. So. <laughs> well, Tom oh, Cruise exactly. just walked in. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> Kathy, um uh, what what do you what do you think about this episode um i'm so glad we're going back through them again uh because uh of, of the orison wells episodes from the beginning because i was really struck with this one about the very the moment in time the war has just been over for a month and to what i, I from what orison is saying and the tone of his voice i really just get the impression that everybody is sort of shell-shocked the atom bomb, you know, was a, a, such a game changer. And I really, I'm fascinated by how he's really pushing the one world concept and uh, um, a central authority. And that, um, you know, th that we can't just be American the victors, America the victors and spreading our ideas around the world. That um, is, and, and, and within just days and weeks, the um uh the russian issue is gonna you know sort of leap in and, and change the game again but uh as i said just this little moment in time fascinates me of uh everybody just go what do we do now and um and i think for at least a short while a number of people agreed with orson wells that uh it can't just be america governing the world that someone even higher than america that some central authority maybe of scientists or whoever, uh, or maybe Eisenhower. I like how he's pushing Ike for Supreme Commander and, and, and dumping on Patton as well. So yeah. 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 Well, I guess speaking of that, the I love how you put all that because how everything changed and it's like, what do we do now? Um, we're, do, we're recording this in 2022. And uh, just yesterday, Roe versus Wade was uh, stricken down by, by the Supreme Court. And I'm I'm struck the same way by just all of my various friends and things on Facebook and all over the internet, and how they're responding to this. Some are celebrating, some are you know just in a state of grief, some are in a state of denial, some are immediately in a militant state about how they're going to try and change things. Um, it, it's just when these huge things that that affect the entire country happen or the entire world happen in the case of World War II. Um, it's just interesting to see how people respond when there's a big change and, and what they're gonna do. So, uh, John, did you uh, 
notice anything in here that you wanted to, to bring up or anything? Um, yeah, well, I did think that the the bit of uh, history about the uh, Nazi salute was really interesting. And you really bust my bu burst my bubble when you said that it was not accurate. Because <laughs> it seems plausible. I was in the same boat last week when Terry came on and told me it wasn't real. And I was like, oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> it seems plausible. And it reminds me of a, a show that I listened to recently, an old radio show called uh, uh, Bill Stern's News, Sports Newsreel or something like yes. that. But the difference is in that one, they tell all, they tell all these stories. Some of them are true allegedly some of them are definitely legends but they all have a great punch a great setup and then payoff and at the end i think maybe at the beginning too they give a disclaimer that says like some of these are real some of them are legend and some of them are somewhere in the middle so i thought it was interesting that they're they care more about the story than they do about like factual accuracy exactly exactly everyone likes a good story <laughs> Terry, what do, what do you got? What, what do you got for us, and what do you want to tear apart for us? <laughs> I, I, as as uh, you all know, I used to work for CBS News, and I I actually worked with Dan Rather uh, for a while, and he used well, to. Dan uh, Rather just walked in. Oh, there he is! Hey, Dan. Hey, Dan. Yeah. <laughs> he what, Dan? You say us. your voice is gone? Oh well. We'll keep <laughs> Dan used to regale us with stories when we'd get together for dinners and, you know, as a group and talk about the day. And he would begin his stories by saying, this story has the added advantage of being true. And I, I wanted to say, Dan, I wish you'd begin the evening news that way, but he never did. <laughs> um, but Orson Welles, certainly in, in this episode, should have said um, that uh, the story I'm about to tell you is is a wonderful story. It's just a little a light on the facts. Uh, but before I get to Cecil B. DeMille, uh, I want to do what John Henderson does so well on his Jack Benny podcast, which is to give you a, a few references that might not be familiar uh, because it was so long yeah. ago. And one thing that, that Wells says is um, uh, talking about Patton and, and Eisenhower, he, he said, uh, it's as plain as the nose on Mr. Bevan's face. And I had to look it up. I did not know who Mr. Bevins was. Well, Ernest Bevins was the uh, the UK foreign minister at the time. He later became prime minister, I think. Uh, but but it was a name that was familiar to most listeners, I guess, in 1945. He also um, he also um, talked about uh, this 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 uh, alleged woman from Weehawken, and I don't know if there really was a woman from Weehawken, but I, I he, she was a, a good device for him to talk about various topics that he wanted to bring up. And I forgot that Weehawken, New Jersey was where the famous uh, uh, Hamilton-Burr duel took place. And I lived in New Jersey and I never went there, but I, I, maybe we'll go back someday. Um, and then, of course, he, as, as you've mentioned, he uh, talks about one world government a lot, which is a favorite topic of his. And he did beat up on, on Patton, which he loved to do for being a little too cozy with those, uh, with those Nazis. So speaking of Nazis, <clears throat> Orson said, he says in this commentary that Cecil B. DeMille uh, is somehow responsible for inspiring that Nazi uh, fascist salute. And he attributes it to a film that uh, DeMille 
directed uh, called The Eternal City. The only problem with that is Cecil B. DeMille did not direct The Eternal City. Um, <laughs> That's a fairly big fact to get right. He did direct a film called The Sign of the Cross, uh, which was also about you know the Roman Empire, and it included um, arguably a, a, a fascist salute, you know, a stiff-armed salute. But that was far from the first time it was depicted in art. I mean, there were paintings, there were statues, and and there were other films. Uh, ben Hur, the original, 1907, uh, depicted that that salute. And you can go back to 1892 with uh, Francis Bellamy and his flag salute, which at that time was meant to be uh, recited with a stiff arm salute. It was changed during the war to uh, the hand over the heart, but there is no way that Cecil B. DeMille was responsible for inspiring the Nazi salute. And even if you want to use his 1932 film as an example, well, the Nazis started doing it in 23. So I'm sorry, Orson, no sale. <laughs> <laughs> nice drivers. But I, but I do want to, I do want to praise him for two things. Um, his, his recitation of um, John Donne's, um, uh, no Man is an Island from Meditation 17 was wonderful. It's always so great to hear Orson Welles reciting great literature, poetry in this case. Um, the, the weird thing was he called him John Don. I don't know why. That was odd. Isn't that weird? I, that caught me too. It's like, what? Yeah. But so, the um, other thing I want to give him great credit for was promoting a film, which is available on YouTube, by the way, and I watched, and it was really very entertaining. It's called The House on 92nd Street, and it came out shortly before this commentary. It was directed by Henry Hathaway. It starred, uh, among others, uh, Lloyd Nolan. And here's the interesting connection. There are always connections, right? It was co-written by John Monks Jr., who also co-wrote, produced, and directed a movie called No Man is an Island. Uh, and that movie is about a, a Marine named George Ray Tweed, who during the Second World War was on Guam, and he managed to hide out while the Japanese had, um, had occupied the island until the Americans came along and liberated it and freed him. And it's kind of the reverse of that story that uh, you hear from time to time about a soldier, notably a Japanese soldier during the war who didn't know the war was over and he was there for long afterwards. So it was, you know, th these these connections are there in, in Wells' commentaries. It's just that sometimes they, they're a little a little off on the on the specifics. It's okay. It's still a, a fantastic commentary. Yeah, I, I wanted to mention that movie also because there's an episode of Jack Benny that I can't remember which one it is now, but they mention that movie or they they reference it in a joke. So I looked it up and it was the kind of thing where it was interesting enough that I sort of skipped through to see a little more rather than just got a clip. Although I do feel Wells oversells it in this. It is certainly not the greatest spy movie ever made. It's <laughs> Orson oversells be... something that is hard to believe. Orson never goes over the top on it. <laughs> like, uh, he's a great pitchman. He's a great salesman. He is. Like, um, it's sort of trying to be half almost like a documentary where they're trying to say, like, this is real. This really happened. This is really what it was. It's certainly no James Bond, although I'm sure this is pre-James Bond. 
It, it's a shame he wasn't selling Lear radios. As, uh, <laughs> as this, they're going to have television in them in 1945. So. Oh, speaking of Lear radios, Kathy uh, sent us a picture of a Lear radio adverti advertisement. I was looking at it and going, man, those were nice looking radios. I mean, they were huge. Like you say, they, they were gigantic, but uh, they, they made some they must have been really, really expensive radios from what it looks like in the pictures and everything and the way it's they talk about them and everything. But uh, pretty amazing. I'd love to have one of those. They, they, when you find them on eBay, they, they go for a pretty penny. But I love that ad that we can, you can uh, uh, throw a picture of the ad up there. They use the advertising technique of making it a, a gigantic 20-story tall uh, uh, radio plunked down in a suburban uh, a landscape uh, to just show how it's going to be the, the king lear of, uh, of radios. So, uh, And that's one of those things where you order it and then it's the size of a, I don't know, yeah. <laughs> it's eight inches across and you're like, what's going on here? It was supposed to be taller than a building. Uh, anyway, but yeah, I'll try and share that ad with folks in the when I post it. So it's fun so stuff. That Speaking of sort of grandiosity, though, I did want to touch on one more thing that Wells mentions about DeMille. So I think um, even though his fascist salute bit is is off base, I actually think what Wells does say and how he does connect DeMille to sort of uh, fascist regimes is his, his emphasis on showmanship is what he calls showmanship. Because, you know, DeMille's films like, you know, sort of um, what fit what some scholars have called like a fascist aesthetic, right? This idea of huge people moving in unison, the idea of the parade. And so there is a connection there. I mean, it's not De DeMille only, but it's also a thing that Wells is obsessed with in his films as well. We see it in films like Citizen Kane and other explorations of power. You know, these huge wide shots of tons of people, um, of powerful leaders in, you know, uh, in the front of the crowd. And so I think that is a much better point of Wells's connections about sort of uh, fascist showmanship rather than the salute itself, which of course plays a part in this sort of Roman-esque feel that, um, you know, fascist regimes were going after. So that I actually found useful, um, uh, you know, in, in thinking historically about fascist and media and things like that. There you go. Well, uh, one last thing uh, to point out that I don't think we've mentioned. He does do a reading for us today. Um, what, what, did, what was he reading from? What was the... It was John Donne, uh, No Man is an Island. Yeah. And uh, he does a beautiful job, as always. Um, it, I love it when he, when he does a little bit of reading for us, because usually it's often from the Bible or uh, various other sources, but they're always good. And so that's entertaining. A very entertaining 15-minute piece with Orson, and that's why we spend 25 minutes talking about yeah. the 15-minute piece. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> and and, and Daryl, one deep dive for your biggest fans is when um, uh, if this links to um, the judgment at Nuremberg, uh, uh, Playhouse 90 presentation that they have that set years later but here is um, uh, uh, Orson talking about that same uh, uh, push by some to uh, let's get past this oh let's 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 get along let's get along with the Germans uh, you know let, let's uh, so uh, right. I appreciate all the things that um, you've taught me through our uh, the various uh, uh, new things you expose me to 
So yay, connections. <laughs> Thank you. You're so welcome for that. And uh, and I love how everything connects too. That's that's one of the reasons I do the podcast. It's one of the reasons we do these shows. So a anyone have anything else to throw out in there? John, did you have something? I was just going to respond to what you were saying about the quote, because, you know, a lot of times we don't have the same cultural breadth that say Orson Welles has. So, you know, you hear something like for whom the bells toll, or sorry, for whom the bell tolls. Yes. And you haven't, I've never read the book, uh, No Man is an Island. I've heard the Simon and Garfunkel song, but uh, <laughs> <There you laughs> no, but, uh, but to hear, you know, a little more context and maybe to inspire people to dive a little deeper into these great works of literature, I think is a, one of the great things about listening to old radio. I think so too. I think so too. Fantastic. So we'll let it go at that. I hope you guys enjoy this episode. I so enjoyed having our whole team back to, to chat about it. Um, hopefully, uh, more of us will be able to, to do this uh, again as, as uh, Vincent has finished some things. And so hopefully he'll be available a little bit more in things and that'll be fantastic. So we'll see you all next time. And for now, enjoy Orson Welles. Hard not to. He's great. See you all later. Stay tuned to this station for KECA's new program, Orson Welles. Orson Welles speaking. We'll start this broadcast with an amusing and little-known fact. Here goes. Cecil B. DeMille, the Hollywood motion picture producer, invented the salute used by the fascists. I'll tell you about that story in just a minute. For just a moment, let me tell you a little about Lear Incorporated, the makers of Lear Radios. The name is spelled L-E-A-R. It's very probable that you haven't seen it on a radio set, even though Lear has been making radio sets for more than 15 years. The reason is the radios Lear has been making up to now have been very special radios. Radios built exclusively for airplanes. You see, aircraft radios have to be far in advance of ordinary design, far in the lead when it comes to operating with unfailing reliability. They have to be the best the field can offer, for the security of the plane, the pilot, and the passengers often rests on them. This is the kind of manufacture that Lear knows. It's a standard that's keyed the entire Lear organization. Now, Lear is building home radios. And these instruments will share with the aircraft radios that knowledge of design, engineering skill, and ability to look ahead that have marked Lear's radio manufacture for 15 years. Later on, we'll tell you something about the sets themselves. Meanwhile, remember this when you see the Lear home radio. Since 1930, Lear has been the name men fly by. Now, Mr. Wells brings you his views and opinions on events as he sees them. The opinions are his own and do not necessarily represent the views of Lear Incorporated. In spite of our political differences of opinion, and they are considerable, I must emphasize that when C.B. DeMille invented the salute used by the fascists, he didn't know he was doing any such thing and didn't mean at all to contribute to the effectiveness of Mussolini's and later Hitler's showmanship. The stiff arm greeting of the fascisti is generally presumed to be a revival from the days of the Roman Empire, but I can find no historical record that any of the Caesars were hailed by that now famous salute. The gesture first appeared in one of the more grandiose of CB's silence, the Eternal City. The Duce loved the way all the Hollywood extras raised their arms at the approach or mention of the Hollywood Caesar, so the sawdust Caesar of modern Rome plagiarized it. As a matter of fact, a great part of the pomp and pageantry of the fascist parades and spectacles was just so much stolen Cecil B. de Millinery.
Let's not be beastly to the Germans, sang General Patton. Let's not be horrid to the Hun. Noting his tune, we said on this program we thought old blood and guts couldn't get out of that big Bavarian mess he walked into. Well, he got out. Ike Eisenhower kicked him out. This move should not come as a surprise to all of General Eisenhower's admirers and most of General Patton's. It should be noted, however, that there are many other unpunished army officials who are being nice to the Nazis. I talked to an army friend of mine about this the other day. Not my good friend George Marshall, another George, another good friend. He's an infantry lieutenant of no historical or social renown, but he's been around quite some in this man's war. What he talked about was his general, the best darn division commander in the U.S. Army, George called him. All his life, George said, the old man spent getting the military know-how. He took over our division in 1943, and in a week we knew that here was a man we'd willingly follow into combat. When we got overseas and came up against the Germans, it really paid off. Now and then we heard from officers around us, we'd sometimes pick up stragglers and whole battalions and companies, and they'd land into their CO for all sorts of tactical errors and strategical miscalculations. But in our outfit, we never thought we'd lost a soul through any fault we could trace back to the old man. After VE Day, we got an occupational assignment in the American zone in Europe. Some of us who had some idea of Nazis looked forward to that, that we were in for a lot of disappointment. Soon we had former Nazis serve as our translators and some moving in to be our informers. They'd put the finger on anti-Nazis, accusing them of sabotage and such, and our only real friends among the Germans had wind up inside our stockade. Jews and the DPs stayed in the concentration camp. We slept in the mud and tents and fat krauts stayed in their warm homes they'd kept by Heiling Hitler. There's only one way to get into those homes, by fraternizing. So 95% of us did. It was plain enough that the old man had no idea why he'd been killing Germans, just fought, that was all. And how he fought. In war, he was as relentless and sure as the Mississippi. And suddenly in peace, as shallow and uncertain as a summer breeze. I still love him. I'm convinced that I'd be dead with a bunch of my buddies if it weren't for the old man. But I do think it's unfair for a man who spent his whole life studying war and winning two of them to be expected to win the peace, too. He's been too busy learning how to fight war to learn what causes them. So spoke my friend, the second Louis, on the subject of his old general. I think George helps to explain what happened to Patton. I hear a good deal of talk nowadays of on making General Eisenhower Secretary General of the New World Organization. I'm for it. There's a better man for the job than Eisenhower. I don't know who he is. But it will be very necessary to have on Ike's staff a number of genuinely well-informed civilians so we don't repeat the mistakes we made in Germany, are making in Germany, mistakes we're making in Japan. And speaking of world organization, Russia is presently very much on the defensive as to what she can expect from it. We told you the London Conference of Foreign Ministers would be a flop. We're very sorry to say we were right, but don't think that flop weakened the ultimate validity of the United Nations organization. It emerges now as the only real hope of world peoples for world peace. The truth is that the atom bomb has canceled the last atom of sense in the old-fashioned notion of competitive sovereign nationalism. Cancel that notion quite as finally as gunpowder canceled the bow and arrow. 
Just about everybody in the world knows this, except the leaders of the world. Just about everybody except those leaders realizes that keeping the peace calls for a police system and a court of law, which means final central authority, something bigger than any nation and stronger. This ceased to be theoretical or visionary and became desperately factual on August 6, 1945. Since the first atom bomb exploded, it's been as plain as the nose on Mr. Bevan's face, as simple as Harry Truman's smile as undeniable as Stalin's mustache. Suppose the United States had tried to live together without a federal government, and even with it, you remember, we had a civil war. Suppose the states were held together by treaties and alliances instead of by a constitution and the authority of Washington. Well, California would have long since annexed Colorado, or tried to, in the interests of security. Iowa would be demanding a port on the Pacific Ocean and Brooklyn would have taken over New York for Lebensraum. We have our troubles as it is, but just imagine what it'd be like in our part of the continent without a Congress, a Supreme Court, or a national army. Imagine what the world is going to be like, say, 50 or 100 years from now, without a World Congress or a global Supreme Court and an international army. Well, the woman from Weehawken is still writing me at great length. Sorry I haven't got room this week to deal with her latest letter in full. We'll take up the matter of fortune-telling. She took umbrage at something said on this program a while back about soothsaying and prognostication. I said there wasn't any such thing, and she says I ought to know better. Madam, you claim there are genuine fortune-tellers, honest people who can really peer into the future and tell what they see. If you know any personally, will you please ask them the following questions? Will our government agree on a fixed policy on wage levels, price control, and security in time to save us all from scuttling prosperity and wrecking domestic peace? Will our government agree to agree with other governments? Will all governments agree on one government before this one world of ours gets too small for our new toys and joins the anonymity of space as just another spinning globe of ash. The woman in Weehawken wants to know why I say the welfare of a woman on the other side of the world is her welfare. And rather than read her another one of my vest pocket sermons on the interdependence of man and one-worldness in general, I'm referring her to John Don, who lived a couple of centuries ago and had this to say on the subject. Now this bell tolling softly for another, says to me, Thou must die. Perchance he for whom this bell tolls may be so ill as that he knows not it tolls for him. And perchance I may think myself so much better than I am as that they who are about me and see my state may have caused it to toll for me. And I know not that. All mankind is of one author and is one volume. When one man dies, one chapter is not torn out of the book, but translated into a better language, and every chapter must be so translated. God employs several translators. Some pieces are translated by age, some by sickness, some by war, some by justice. 
but God's hand is in every translation, and his hand shall bind up all our scattered leaves again for that library where every book shall lie open, one to another. As therefore the bell that rings to a sermon calls not upon the preacher only, but upon the congregation to come, so this bell calls us all. But how much more me who am brought so near the door by this sickness? The bell doth toll for him that thinks it doth. And though it intermit again, yet from that minute that that occasion wrought upon him, he is united to God. Who casts not up his eye to the sun when it rises? But who takes off his eye from a comet when that breaks out? Who bends not his ear to any bell which upon any occasion rings? But who can remove it from that bell which is passing a piece of himself? out of this world. No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less, as well as if a promontory were, as well as if a manner of thy friends or of thine own were. Any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind. And therefore, never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Now in just a moment, I'd like to tell you about a new motion picture, but first, an important announcement. Way back in 1930, Lear began making radios, radios for airplanes. Now, Lear is making home radios as well, and what radios they are. A whole line of handsome sets you'll delight to look at and listen to. Some have television. Some include high-fidelity, static-free FM. There are models with record players and automatic record changers. And some will have the new Lear wire recording you've been reading about. With all their fine background and unusual excellence, you'll find Lear radios are not high in price. The masterpiece of them all, that includes television, automatic record changer, and the best of everything, is $500. At the other end of the line, there's a very capable, good-to-look-at table model at $19.95. The one best way to appreciate what Lear is contributing to home radio is to hear these new sets themselves. Soon you can go to your Lear dealer and have him play them for you. We're sure you'll agree that you get more radio value for every dollar you pay for a Lear radio. And now a few words about next week. In Hollywood, you know, we've never managed to make the grade of spy thriller, which is the best thing the British do in movies. I think I have the right to say this because I've written a couple of these and produced one of them, and my spy stories are even worse than my compatriots. Now I'm glad to announce that a picture about secret agents and such characters, good enough to stand with Hitchcock, I mean his English period, and the top Carol Reed has finally been made in America. The film is called The House on 92nd Street. It's playing at your local theater now, or will be soon, and I beg you to see it. My time's up now. Next week, we'll talk about the Nuremberg Trials and that music man I've been promising, putting off for so long. I hope to have something more worth your attention. Anyway, please let me come to call again, and thanks for this time. Until then, my sponsors, the makers of Lear Radio, and I remain, as always, obediently yours. This is the American Broadcasting Company. <laughs>